If I had my life to live over, I would live very, very little of it the same. When people say they would change nothing in their life, I think they are either liars or fools. Life is about learning. And if you respect life and learn from it, you would of course not do things the same way. To start with, if I had my life to live over, I would never say no to a woman. And I would never skip a meal, not a single one. I would always eat the best food and price be damned, just as I would drink good wines or do without. And no spring would pass without a planting, no fall without fat fires, no winter without black coffee in a dark room during the wait for the endless night to give way to dawn. To sleep in is a grievous sin. Also, I would do nothing purely for money, because every time I have done such a thing, I have failed myself. Nor would I throw a single stone or sight down on a deer. I accept my hunger for the flesh, but will take no joy in the killing. I would never raise my voice except in song, and there would be no hurry. That word would be abolished. I would never think that wars are events recorded in the book of history, but realize they are actual, and always take my hands from my ears and hear the cries of the slain. Charles Bowden wrote that. Chuck was a legendary Borderlands journalist who chronicled the horrors of the drug war and the fragility of its victims and survivors. His books include Down by the River, Blood Orchid, and Blues for Cannibals. What's so astonishing about his writing is the uncanny way he fuses ferocity and tenderness. The same is true of filmmaker Matthew Heinemann. Heinemann exploded onto the global stage with Cartel Land, made his fiction debut with The Private War. His latest film is Retrograde. It is a requiem for the forever war in Afghanistan, and it is a fierce and beautiful piece of work. There are images in it that will haunt you forever. And even when the lens is trained at others, the deeper subject is always, in some way, a revelation of his own soul. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with director Matthew Heinemann. So this is a brave and beautiful and very haunting movie. I watched it the other night with my wife and, and was just left, you know, speechless and kind of bell rung at the end of it. And I'm curious, where does this movie start for you? And beginning anywhere from like at birth to the moment your last film finishes, like where does the story of making this film begin for you? And what is that story? Um, it's a good question. I mean, I guess in some sense, probably starts in high school. Um, I was an athlete in high school. I was uh, hoping to play lacrosse in college and looking, looking at schools, and I was very much considering going to the Naval Academy and, and all that that stood for. So I guess in some sense, my interest in and uh, admiration for those who serve uh, began then. Um, that wasn't actualized for a very long time, I guess, until, right. until making this film. But if, if you're asking me to go back, uh, yeah, I probably went all the way back then. In college, I, I also considered going to officer candidate school um, and, and, you know, possibly a, a career in the military. And instead, I, you know, I guess I became a filmmaker. 
And then where does it pick up from the time that you decide, okay, I'm packing my bags and putting my shit and getting on the plane? Like, take us through the, kind of the pregame to that and making the decision to go and kind of the, the contexts and circumstances in which this particular film is born. I mean, I think I've always been intrigued by service. You know, what is service? Um, and... You know, why do men and women fight wars, you know, both on a sort of 10,000-foot uh, level, but also on a, uh, in, for me, sort of more interestingly, uh, on, a, on a human level? Uh, what, what, what drives somebody to want to pursue uh, that career path and, 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 and all the psychology that, that comes with, with that? Um, and so I think you know, three, four, five years ago, I was interested in, in sort of exploring that. Why, why do human beings fight wars? Um, it's sort of a, a vague, sort of cliched idea to explore. Um, but I started to look into different ways to explore that story, different communities to um, try to capture and, and, and it sort of start to zero in on special forces communities um, this, this originally began as an exploration of um, U.S. Army Rangers, um, but ultimately weren't able to get the access that I wanted to get and teamed up with the amazing producer, Caitlin McNally, who I worked with on this film and, and decided to focus on U.S. Army Green Berets. Um, it took several years to get ac the access that we needed to be able to embed um, with them on a deployment. Uh, it just so turned out that what we... And, you know, these delays and COVID and ended up was being the weird on. blessing that, yeah, that sometimes gives birth to the specificity of a film, right? Exactly. And, you know, it turned out that we were on the last U.S. deployment to Afghanistan, um, the longest war in U.S. history. And so, like every film I've ever made, uh, the film evolved and changed uh, many, 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 many times, um, including two months into filming when President Biden... Uh, you know, pulled out our troops and the team, the Green Beret team that we're filming with left. And so I just was, you know, terrified that I didn't have a movie. Um, yep. And it wasn't what we set out to do. It wasn't what we expected to do. And so that's when the whole movie shifted. So it's interesting, you know, and my experience is the same, right? Like you set out thinking, okay, I'm making this movie. And then at some point it takes a weird right turn and you either pivot and, you know, play the cards that you're dealt or you don't have a movie. And, and, and what I think was, you know, it's interesting about this. One of the many things that's, that's fascinating and, and, and riveting about the movie is the pivot to General Sammy's story, right? Because your your point of entry is you're in with the Green Berets, and then and it was interesting as Sammy's character sort of arrived into that world as a character entrance. Uh, you know, my initial assumption was, okay, this is going to be a bit player in the story. You know, uh, you know the incompetent local guy or whatever the tropes might be, and instead it becomes this very evolving sort of human portrait of him really almost you know as like when do you realize hey this is my protagonist and this is who I'm investing in as an audience member and what's the pivot that you have to make as a filmmaker to to follow that when I was 21 years old um a mentor of mine uh 
uh, said, if you, if you end up with the story you started with and you weren't listening along the way, uh, which is good advice for life, it's good advice for, for filmmaking, you know, don't be dogmatic, be open to the story changing. And that's something that I've, you know, held near and dear to my heart at every step along the way in a macro sense in my career, um, but definitely in a micro sense within each film, within each shoot day, within each moment. Um, and yeah, so, you know, things, when we started this, I never expected to end up embedding with a Afghan general and, and seeing the end of the war through his eyes. Um, but that's, that's exactly what this became. I think when, at that moment when Biden pulled out the troops, when the Green Braves left, um, again, I, I, I was terrified I didn't have a movie, and so I reached, reached out to General Sadat and asked him, you know, would you be open to us spending time with you? Um, would you be open to us flying back into Afghanistan and embedding with you and your men? At that point, it wasn't a fait accompli that the Afghan army was going to lose. Um, was, everything was on the table at that point. And I think, you know, I owe enormous amount to him for, for allowing us to be there during these incredibly difficult months um, as his country slowly crumbled around him. Um, and yeah, I, I think I knew right away that, you know, he would be our central character and ended up, you know, filming basically 18, 29 hours a day, every day we were with him, um, just full unfettered access. And what's the pitch to him in terms of access? Because like it requires a level of intimacy where you have to be there, where he's stepping out to take the phone calls and you're able to sort of, you know, follow along with him or whatever those moments are. Do you tell him like, hey, if we're going to do this, we got to go all the way with it? Or do you sort of soft negotiate it along the way? Or how do you contend with that? I'm a pretty like open book negotiator. Uh, I think uh, I think transparency in these instances are, is absolutely key. Um, I told him even before I flew out there that this is this is how I do things. You know, I, I want to be able to film from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed. Um, I want to become a part of the fabric of your daily life and the lives of your men. Um, is that something you're open to? And and obviously that's you know in the intimate access that I seek and that I strive for. It, is, is, is something that's constantly negotiated. Like, you know, of course it was set up and it was discussed before I flew out there, but it's, it's a, it's a hour. It gets renegotiated in the, in the minute. Yeah. Constantly. Yeah. And especially when you're dealing with, you know, top secret, high level, you know, military strategy and, and, uh, yep. you know, there's, a, there's a lot of doors that, that I had to open that, that were, you know, getting shut. Um, but you know, we, we developed a rhythm really quickly and uh and and that was paved you know with our experience with filming with him uh with the green berets beforehand so you know he knew who we were he knew what we were doing um it wasn't how you operated yeah yeah it wasn't starting from scratch it just was sort of a reorientation so what is your footprint like when you roll out, you know, you're shooting, I, I noticed you had a couple of other, you know, cameramen credited. What's the size of your footprint and, and sort of how are you, um, how are you managing that crew as you go? So I, I worked with two incredibly talented and experienced uh, DPs along with myself. I, I shoot myself as well. Um, Olivia Starbell um, and Tim Grushka. 
you know, we, we talked for months before even starting this film about my style of filmmaking, my approach to filmmaking, my approach to shooting, how I wanted this to look and to feel. Um, that stuff is extremely important to me. My goal with every film, but especially this film, was to, you know, put people on the ground in, in these places. I want you to feel the wind as you're sitting on the porch as tracer bullets are, are, are flying overhead. I want you to feel like what it's like to be in a Black Hawk helicopter as they're resupplying in town and RPGs are being shot at you. I want you to be, um, you know, feel like what it's like to be in the room when your president tells you that you're going to be forced to retrograde and leave a war zone in which, you know, you've lost many friends. I want you to, I want you to feel like what it's like to be visceral and up close. And, and, um, so, you know, we, we shoot a lot. I mean, we shot well over a thousand hours of footage. You know, we're rolling all the time. Um, it's, it's, you know, some people call it fly on the wall filmmaking. Fly on the wall implies uh, a sort of lack of uh, engagement, um, that you're just a passive observer. And that's definitely not the case here. As we just talked about, you know, you're constantly dialoguing and having uh, negotiating the access and pushing to get into places you're not supposed to get into um, and to see things you're not supposed to see. It's, it's, it, it's beautifully achieved. Um, and like, how are you triangulating coverage? And like, are you guys splitting up or when you're shooting a scene, are you shooting, okay, A is getting master, B is getting close-ups and sort of like, what's the communication factor and how are you managing that coverage? We would never shoot three cameras at once. Sometimes we shot two cameras at once. Um, it just was a dance, you know, we all shoot really similarly. And again, at that point, we, we had, were so dialed with our process in this film that we're just sort of dancing around each other. And, and, it's, and it's sort of unspoken, you know, okay, you, you're over there, you're stuck in that corner, I got this, you know, just sort of, oh, you're on that lens, I'll be in this lens. Like, it just, it's just sort of an unspoken dance, um, which I love. And then, and then you know, but, but a lot of the film was, was one camera coverage as well. Um, uh, you know, alone in a room, alone in a helicopter, um, that kind of stuff. And what's your editorial process like? Are you, and sort of even data management, right? Like, what are you doing with all your dailies as you're rolling? And do you have hard drives? Are you shipping them back? Or, you know, are you cutting along the way? Or, yeah, probably not. But, like, what is that process? Definitely not cutting. You're just praying you're not going to lose it or it's not going to get destroyed or stolen or whatever. Um, so we're, we're downloading in the field and, and then bringing it back home when we're done with the shoot. When I'm shooting, um, I, I, I'm always watching. Even if, I'm, if it means I'm not sleeping that night or I'm going to sleep for an hour, I, I want to look at what I shot. I want to look at what I make sure I got what I think I got. Um, and that's the other interesting thing about going back to coverage is that we're, you know, I... We don't speak Dari or Pashto. I don't speak Dari or Pashto. And so often when you're shooting in English, you're chasing dialogue. Um, right. People are instinctually chasing dialogue. You know, you don't want to miss that line on camera. But I love shooting in foreign languages because you're shooting based on emotion. You're shooting based on pathos or body language. Um, where you think you understand what's happening. And the distraction of words is sort of removed where you're locked into the humanity of it. Exactly, and that's why in this film there's really long reaction shots of, of, of people obviously crescendoing with the final shot of, of the young woman at the gate at, at the Kabul airport. But that's, you know, the motif of, of faces, of, of humanizing this, 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 um, this story, this, this end of the war, was something that was very much discussed in the field 
and then very much you know uh, contemplated and actualized in the edit room. By the time you get to the edit bay, like how clear are you when you walk in the sort of scene construction? How much are you pre-editing in your mind? Okay, that goes in, this A leads to B, I'm gonna plant this and pay off here. I mean like, the, you know, the, the story construction is so elegant with, you know, down to so many fine points, but even just the simple framing of Green Berets at the beginning, the reprise of it at the end, and the kind of elegant, like, how much of that are you walking in with? How much are you finding in the bay? I'm aware, aware of a lot of that in the field. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm yeah, I'm, I'm taking stock of all the, all the story beats and the twists and turns, even if I'm not understanding the periods and commas, what's being said. Um, you know, I, I, we had an amazing um, group of sort of field producers and translators with us um, who, who would sort of summarize what was going on, um, out, just to, you know, make sure I knew all the twists and turns of, of what was happening. Again, I, I wouldn't understand every, every sentence necessarily, but I would definitely understand the paragraphs and the pages. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, but there's, of course, there's amazing discoveries in that room, especially when given the foreign language of it all, um, that we, uh, yeah, found in the editor room. But, uh, but I think, you know, those were sort of few and far between. And I think for the most part, there, there wasn't, there, there's a few scenes that were absolute discoveries in the editor room, but the, the majority were things that I, I knew. That's a, sort of the fundamental enterprise. And like, once you get into the edit, which is like removing everything that isn't the essential narrative arc or sort of character development along the way. How are you doing that sort of selects process to pare it down, particularly given that sort of shooting ratio? Um, amazing team of editors on this film. Um, and we, you know, I, th I think the, the very difficult thing was threading the needle between this, this baton pass off from the Green Berets to General Sadat. And, you know, I think there's different iterations of the film where sort of 50, 50, 50, you know, 50%, um, U S military, and then 50% the handoff to Sadat and him be alone. Um, I, I think the ratio that we ended up with, which is sort of the end of the first act is, is Biden pulling out the troops and, and the green Bay's leaving. Um, I think it was, was, was sort of discovered relatively quickly as a, as a structural device. And then, um, you know, the end of the second act being uh, the sort of fall of the Taliban and the, the final exodus being the third act. I generally work with in sort of treatment fashion, you know, writing rough treatments of, of how I want the story to be told, uh, you know, iterating dozens and dozens of times, obviously, as, as things progress. Um, but I was, I was quite busy with shooting a different film, so I wasn't able to dig into the edit really until... Um, sort of like a really, 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 really rough assembly of about five or six hours. I was, of course, involved in that, but I didn't start cutting myself and I didn't really start getting my hands on the keys and being in the room until like a, a really rough assembly, which was, that rough assembly was a totally different film than the film you saw. Um, that was more of the sort of 50-50 um, split film. And so you're working, you know, typically from 
paper on paper now I'm talking about in terms of the story fashioning, right? Which is, so you're writing treatments, are you breaking it down to like scenes by cards or, or is it like, Hey, here's the rough shape and structure of it. Or how, how sort of detailed and intimate are you in those scene breakdowns for the editors as they're roughing, roughing it out? I mean, every, every film is different. Um, for me, I think, this film was a bit a, a bit less organized, I think, than than the previous film, just because of how it's being pulled in many directions in my life, career wise, and and another project that I was finishing. Um, generally, I like to cut, you know, the best films first. Like those are the I know those are the anchor scenes of the movie. These are the scenes that that are gonna people are gonna talk about. These are the scenes that are gonna drive the story. And using those as sort of the the, the key data markers. Okay, well, if, if we're going, if we need to end up there. What what are the we got to drive to it? Yeah. Drive, what 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 what's going to drive us there, or or what's the denouement of that moment? Like, what do we learn? How's the character? What 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 are we re- revealing in general, Sadat, during this moment? Um, you know, and, and and a good example of a scene that you know was sort of discovered in the edit room was there's a scene in the movie when um, General Sadat is is being confronted by the chief of police in the in the capital of Helmand in, in Lashkar. Uh, he's challenging him, saying, "Look, we're you have to acknowledge, like we're losing here. This is we don't have planes, we don't have support." And and General Sadat sort of didn't want to hear it. You know, he he yep. sort of had this faith in himself that maybe just maybe if they kept fighting, they could hold on to Helmand. If they held on to hold, on, if they could hold on to Helmand, they could hold on to Afghanistan. And I think part of the sort of architecture of this film is this man pushing forward despite every neon sign saying stop you're losing give up you know the, the country's crumbling what are you doing um he just kept pushing forward and, and, and fighting and i think that is a obviously that's a trope that we've seen throughout literature and, and movies it um, works but it but it it's also happened to be true in this case um but i, I think that that was definitely sort of as we got deeper into in the edit, like that was something that we were articulating in a, in a clearer and clearer way. Um, and that, that scene with him being confronted is, is, is obviously a really important um, data mark in, in, in General Sadat's arc. Yeah, it's a powerful scene. And as you were saying that, what I was just thinking is, you know, I wonder how much it strikes me that that's probably your process in some ways too, which is sort of relentlessly persevere regardless because the same warning signs as a filmmaker are flashing for you. Like the green berets have left and then you're like, well, that's when, that's when my movie starts, you know? So that like, it's a, there's a, I think kind of parallel lines in your arc and his in a fundamental way. How, how, like, um, how deeply did you identify with him? <laughs> You're you're obviously good at your job. I, these are things that I that are right on that, but not that I've necessarily thought about too deeply. But that is, yeah. I mean, I think more so than any other. You know, most of the films I make are pretty difficult films. I, I'm you know they're both emotionally, physically, um, logistically, spiritually. I'm sure too. Yeah. I mean, every aspect of. The human experience uh, I don't necessarily make it easy on myself <laughs> um, but I think this film more than any film I, I sort of constantly wanted to stop 
and quit. Like it just, every, there's so many signs like this is just not working. Like, what are you doing? Um, and to no one's fault. Like it just, there's, there's just a button. You know, I don't necessarily want to go into details, but there's, there's just so many times when I'm just like, what are you, what is happening? Like you have so many opportunities to do other things. Like, what are you doing with this film? It's, it's like COVID pushed it. And then, you know, Biden pulled out the troops and, you know, just give up, like cut your losses. Um, but I, you know, I guess it's just not in my nature to do so. Or, and obviously I believe deeply in telling the story. So we persevered and I, you know, I had an amazing team around me as well. And we all fought, fought through it and, you know, hopefully ended up telling it story that was worth telling but there's there's definitely a lot of hurdles along the way and a lot of moments you know another example would be the you know the final act of the film and we were going back to Afghanistan thinking we were going to be with General Sadat for the you know the final weeks maybe months I mean most people are sort of estimating in in early August that the war would last another three six months um so we were preparing to go for you know a two to three month trip and in bed with him as he's sort of in this final fight to save Afghanistan. By the time we actually got to Dubai and got you know on our way to Afghanistan, the country was crumbling rapidly. And we got on a plane to Kabul. Um, at this point, General Sadat had, had gotten to Kabul himself. He was put in charge of the security for, for the city. Um, and the plane started to descend to the airport and the pilot got on the intercom and said, uh, we're, we're not able to land. There's a plane on the tarmac. Um, we're gonna have to circle. We were so low at this point, we could all get cell phone service. Obviously everyone started Googling what was happening. The Taliban had taken over the city. That plane that was on the tarmac was President Ghani leaving. Wow. And we couldn't land. So the plane went back to Dubai I thought it was the greatest journalistic failure of my life. I was I was absolutely devastated um, that I missed this, that I wasn't there on that day. And I could have been, if we, if we got on a plane three hours earlier, I would have been there. If yep. President Ghani, you know, had to go to the bathroom and wasn't on, you know, there's 8,000 yep. factors that led to the, our plane not landing. The pilot was also very scared. I think he could have landed, um, but he didn't. And so we were back in Dubai, I was sitting in a hotel, room in the middle of the Dubai airport stuck thinking I, I just, you know, my career was ruined and I, and I missed the greatest story of my life. And so I spent every waking hour with my team figuring out how to sneak back into the country, which we did, um, four days later. Um, but that was another example of like, just give up. He's like, you know, there, there's no flights, you know, we thought there'd be flights. Okay. There's no flights. Okay. How are we going to get in? And, and, you know, using every connection that I could ever muster and then eventually got back in. It's a, it's a great story because it's emblematic of the kind of feat of perseverance that I think, like, I kept being like, holy shit, how is he still in the room? You know, as I'm watching the film, it was so sort of striking. And then by the time you see that, you know, the sort of Taliban speech and you're still in the room, you know, like, it was like how, like, it was such a monumental act of nothing was going to get in your way. I was devastated to not be there for multiple reasons. Um, one of them was that our main character that we had spent months with was now suddenly at the center of, you know, this massively insane 
historical moment. I mean, he was literally at the center. He was with President Ghani as Ghani was, was he's trying to get him to stay. He was trying to figure out whether they could fight back. He's trying to mobilize people. Then when that became, you know, a fait complete that that wasn't going to happen, he was frantically trying to get his men out. I mean, I was just missing all the stuff that we built towards. And so by the time I got back into Afghanistan, he was out of there. And so I'm now suddenly like, okay, well, what am I doing here? What's my purpose? What is the story? And it became an opportunity to open up the aperture of the film to show these civilian, you know, we argue about wars, we debate wars, there's hawks, there's doves, there's, you know, votes, there's many factors that contribute to why wars are fought or not fought. But at the end of the day, the people that are most hurt, that are most affected, are the civilians of the countries in which wars are being fought. And so the ability to open up the aperture and show finally, you know, the Afghan people that General Sadat was risking his life for, that the Black Hawk helicopter was risking his life for, that all these moments was just suddenly now this opportunity to humanize this country and this, this experience in a way that, you know, I don't think the movie would be nearly what it is if, if, if we hadn't been able to do that. Um, so it suddenly became this opportunity. And also, you know, when we decided to leave the wire, when we decided to leave the airport, not knowing whether we could get back in, not knowing whether um, we'd be able to get on a flight and leave the country, but knowing that we had to at least attempt to see what was happening in the city. And one of the first things we did was hearing about this, you know, senior Taliban meeting and driving up and asking them if we could film. And then again, opening up, up the aperture to show the antagonists of this story yep. uh, up close yep. and personal. You know, one of the things, and I'll, I'll, we can wrap in a minute so you can go about, you know, the madness of what I'm sure is your day. But um, what I so admired about the end of the film and those scenes that you're talking about where we're, you know, seeing people shoved off the wall or you're seeing the kid that's crying by his mother through the chain link fence is the restraint with which it was done. Those are all, those scenes become pure cinema because it's like, it's not about dialogue. It's just about the picture and the elegance of the scoring and just sort of letting you sit with that. And I thought that was so, um, the restraint of it was so powerful. Um, I think I'm an emotional guy. I, I you know, my dad told me that tough, tough men cry, and I've certainly uh, uh, <laughs> adopted that, I guess. And I've certainly cried at many points along the way of making these films that I've made on planes, on the way home, in the edit room, at screenings, you know, wherever. I've never cried while filming. And that scene at the Abbey Gate with thousands of Afghan civilians packed like sardines in a sewage ditch, desperately trying to, f to flee, was unlike anything I'd ever seen in my life. Um, and I filmed a lot of intense and emotional scenes in my life. Um, you know, tears were just streaming. I kept having to wipe down the lens um, because it just kept fogging up every <laughs> every couple of minutes. Um, just just the, the mass desperation of these civilians trying to flee as 18-year-old Marines are making these Sophie's Choice decisions on who to let in, who to not let in, as 
the Taliban were sitting guns at their shoulders on shipping crates a hundred yards away, watching over us as the Taliban, excuse me, as ISIS was circling around the city with suicide vests waiting to attack, which happened 12 hours after I left that exact spot. And all I could think about was what have we done? How did we get here? But really, what have we done? Yeah, that's a, well, it's a, it's a monument to that question that you've made and that you've left us all to reckon with. And just as a fan and an audience member, I want to thank you for, it's so easy to get desensitized to the news and to not enter into the humanity of it and to just have somebody grab you by the heart and hold your eyes up to it. Like, but for you doing that, um, you know, it's just that's you're doing something important in the world. And thank you for doing it. Oh, well, really appreciate it. Um, I have one last question for you, which I will sort of let you go afterwards, I promise, but which is um, features versus docs and sort of where you're at now and what you're using from each discipline to kind of apply to the other. Well, I made a narrative film called The Private War. Um, 2018 it came out, I think. Um and you know, I thought that was a sort of pivot point in my career. In some ways, it was the most personal film I made about a journalist, Marie Colvin, who was killed in Syria. Um, it was sort of an exploration of, of why we do what we do. You know, why why we tell yeah. these stories, and and this is, you know, something that tortured her a lot. You know, do these stories make a difference? Does the does her copy does does what she's writing actually make a difference? And it's certainly something that I contemplate, and keeps me up at night. So, you know, after that, I, I don't know, I, I was sort of curious whether I'd, I loved the experience of making a narrative film, and, I, and but I just happened to be pulled into a, a, another doc, and then I got pulled into another thing, and then just sort of ended up making three or four other docs after that. I think I'm pretty burned out right now. Um, it's been a, a series of pretty intense films, from a film I did about COVID called The First Wave to this. Um, You've been in it, yeah. I've been in it for a while now, and, you know, I... Yeah, I mean, I have nightmares almost every single night. I, it's I'm I'm pretty fried, and so I think not that narratives are an easy path um, per se, but I think I'm I'm excited to sort of continue to push myself as an artist and as a storyteller, and I'm excited to, to um, explore a few narrative projects that I have ahead. So, but I love you know I love I I hope I'm, I have the privilege of of doing both. I mean, it's so lucky to do, I feel so lucky to do what I do. I feel so lucky to be able to tell stories and, and, and uh, but both, both sides of me, if you will, definitely influence the other. Um, I, I can't see myself going to make like, and nothing against those movies. I can't see myself going to make like Avengers 12. Um, right. I want to keep telling real life stories about people persevering in the world, whether it's in doc form or narrative form. It strikes me that you're sort of, you know, shooting a series of self-portraits and others in some way or another, you know, and, and it's an interesting way to be, it's sort of like, this is you, how we leave our mark on the world. This is what I see and what matters to me. And, um, and you do it beautifully every time you do it. So 
you know, keep keep going, man. Keep going. Again, I, I really appreciate you taking the time, and yeah, thank you so much. Brilliant work. Well, I, I hope our paths cross at some point. Let's let's make a point of that happening. Sounds good. Well, thank you. Again. Thank you again, man. Good luck with yeah. everything. Okay, awesome. Take thank care. You. Thank you to Matthew Heineman for making his films and for sharing his time. And thank you to the Green Berets and General Sami Sadat for allowing this artist into your world. I'm Tiller Russell. See you next time on The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. Music by Zydepunk. This show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Thanks for listening, and please don't forget to subscribe.